Hi folks, be sure to visit my website at dr-history.com for a short personal video message, to listen to the latest stories, and to leave a comment. Hi folks, Dr. History here with more stories from the Old West. You know, since it is Christmas time, I thought I would just relate a few stories about Christmas. The first one I'm going to tell you about is regarding Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, born in 1807, died in 1882. But we're going to go to the year 1861. Now, two years before writing this poem, Longfellow's personal peace was shaken when his second wife of 18 years, to whom he was very devoted, was tragically burned in a fire. Then, in 1863, during the American Civil War, Longfellow's oldest son, Charles Appleton Longfellow, joined the Union cause as a soldier without his father's blessings. Longfellow was informed by a letter dated March 14, 1863, after Charles had left. Quote, he says, I have tried hard to resist the temptation of going without your leave, but I cannot any longer, he wrote. I feel it to be my first duty to do what I can for my country, and I would willingly lay down my life for it if it would be of any good. Well, the son Charles soon got an appointment as a lieutenant, but in November he was severely wounded in Georgia. Well, Charles eventually recovered, but his time as a soldier was finished. So Longfellow wrote uh, this poem on Christmas Day in 1863. And of course, you may already know the the song and the poem is Christmas Bells. And it was first published in February of 1865. Now, I'm going to read the words to this poem and song. And there are some references to the Civil War that most commonly is not sung nowadays. But I'm going to read the entire poem to you. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play. And wild and sweet, the words repeat, of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And thought how as the day had come, the belfries of all Christendom had rolled along the unbroken song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Till ringing, singing on its way, the world revolved from night to day. A voice, a chime, a chant sublime, of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then from each black accursed mouth, the cannon thundered in the south, and with the sound, the carols drowned, of peace on earth, goodwill to men. It was as if an earthquake rent the hearthstones of a continent, and made forlorn the households born of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair I bowed my head, there is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep, God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. Now, I'd like to just tell you a little personal story about myself. Uh, when I was about uh, 19 years old, I happened to be in England, and during Christmas time, uh, a friend of mine and I were living in a small uh, army base, English army base, uh, called Tidworth, which is just outside of Salisbury, England. We became friends with a Mr. and Mrs. Patton. Uh, Mrs. Patton was a, a, one of these uh, very sweet, kind old ladies, and she invited us uh, on Christmas Eve to go to church with her, to the Church of England. And then she said, if you would like to come with us and sing in the Church of England choir, you're invited. 
So we thought, okay, we'll do this. So we went with Mr. and Mrs. Patton to the Church of England for their church services on Christmas Eve. Then my friend and I went with Mrs. Patton, and we uh, went into a small room with some of the other choir members. We put on some blue, dark blue robes, so we all looked alike. And then we walked just a short distance to the Army Hospital, which was about two or three stories high. We went from room to room, and we sang Christmas carols. And, uh, you know, it was quite an experience, but it's something that I'll remember all my life, to be able to go and visit and sing uh, in England to these people that were spending Christmas Eve and Christmas Day in the hospital in a small town called Tidworth. This next story takes place in Austria, December 23rd, 1818. Father Joseph Moore sat at the old organ. His fingers stretched over the keys, forming the notes of a chord. He took a deep breath and pressed down. Nothing. He lifted his fingers and tried again. Silence echoed through the church. Father Joseph shook his head. It was no use. The pipes were rusted. The bellows mildewed. The organ had been wheezing and groaning quieter for months, and Father Joseph had been hoping it would hold together until the organ builder arrived to repair it in the spring. But now here it is, December 23, 1818. The organ had finally given out. St. Nicholas Church would have no music for Christmas. Well, Father Joseph sighed. Maybe a brisk walk would make him feel better. He pulled on his overcoat, stepped out into the night. His white breath puffed out before him. Moonlight sparkled off the snow-crusted trees and houses in the village of Oberndorf. Father Joseph crunched through the snowy streets to the edge of the little Austrian town and climbed the path leading to the mountain. From high above Oberndorf, Father Joseph watched the river ripple past the St. Nicholas Church. In the spring, when melting snow flowed down the mountains and the river swelled its banks, water lapped at the foundation of the church, and it was this moisture from the flooding river that had caused the organ to mildew and finally to rust. Well, Father Joseph looked out over the Austrian Alps. The stars shone above in a still and silent night. Silent night. Father Joseph stopped, of course. Silent night. He had written a poem a few years before when he had first become a priest, and he had given it very little thought, but had given it the title Silent Night. Well, Father Joseph scrambled down the mountain. Suddenly he knew how to bring music to the church. So the next morning, Father Joseph set out on another walk. This time he carried his poem, and this time he knew exactly where he was going, to see his friend Franz Gruber, the organist for St. Nicholas, who lived in the next village. Well, Franz Gruber was surprised to see the priest so far from home on Christmas Eve, and even more surprised when Father Joseph handed him the poem. That night, Father Joseph and Franz Gruber stood at the altar of St. Nicholas Church. Father Joseph held his guitar. He could see members of the congregation giving each other puzzled looks. They had never heard a guitar played in church before, and certainly not during Midnight Mass on Christmas Eve, the holiest night of the year. Well, Father Joseph picked out a few notes on the guitar, and he and Franz Gruber began to sing. Their two voices rang out, joined by the church choir on the chorus. Franz Gruber's melody matched the simplicity and honesty of Father Joseph's words. When the last notes faded into the night, the congregation remained still for a moment, then began to clap their hands. Applause filled the church. 
The villages of Oberndorf loved the song. Father Joseph's plan to bring music to St. Nicholas Church had worked. Now, a few months later, the organ builder arrived in Oberndorf and found the words and music to Silent Night lying on the organ. The song enchanted him, and when he left, he took a copy of it with him. The organ builder gave the song to two families of traveling singers who lived near his home. Well, the traveling singers performed Silent Night in concert all over Europe, and soon the song spread throughout the world. And as you know today, cathedral choirs and kellers, uh, carolers from New York to New Zealand sing the simple song that was first played in a mountain church in Austria on Christmas Eve nearly 200 years ago. Another story I would like to relate to you took place in uh, Georgia, Atlantic, Georgia, uh, in about 1970. Well, it was Christmas time, and this took place in the Atlantic, Georgia airport. An ice storm had seriously delayed air travel, as these people were trying to get uh, wherever they most wanted to be for Christmas. Most likely, of course, it would have been home. As I mentioned, this happened in December of 1970. Well, as the midnight hour told, unhappy passengers clustered around ticket counters, conferring anxiously with agents whose cheerfulness had long since evaporated. They, too, wanted to be home. A few people managed to doze in uncomfortable seats. Others gathered at the newsstands to thumb silently through paperback books. If there was a common bond among this diverse throng, it was loneliness, pervasive, inescapable, suffocating loneliness. But airport decorum required that each traveler maintain his invisible barrier against all the others. Better to be lonely than to be involved, which inevitably meant listening to the complaints of gloomy or disheartened fellow travelers. The fact of the matter was that there were more passengers than there were available seats on any of the planes. When an occasional plane managed to break out, more travelers stayed behind than made it aboard. The words, quote, standby or reservation confirmed and first class passenger settled the priorities and kind of talked of money, power, influence, foresight or the lack thereof. So here we are, Gate 67 in Atlanta. It was a microcosm of the whole cavernous airport. Scarcely more than a glassed-in cubicle, it was jammed with travelers hoping to fly to New Orleans, Dallas, and anywhere west. Except for the fortunate few traveling in pairs, there was little conversation at Gate 67. A salesman stared absently into space as if resigned. A young mother cradled an infant in her arms, gently rocking in a vain effort to soothe the soft whimpering. Then there was a man in a finely tailored gray flannel suit who somehow seemed impervious to the collective suffering. There was a certain indifference about his manner. He was absorbed in paperwork, figuring the year-end corporate profits, maybe. A nerve-frayed traveler sitting nearby observing this man might have considered him more like an Ebenezer Scrooge. Suddenly, the silence was broken by a commotion. A young man in military uniform, no more than 19 years old, was in animated conversation with the desk agent. The boy held a low-priority ticket. He pleaded with the agent to help him get to New Orleans so that he could take the bus to the obscure Louisiana village he called home. Well, the agent wearily told him the prospects were poor for the next 24 hours, maybe longer. The boy grew frantic. Immediately after Christmas, his unit was to be sent to Vietnam, where at that time, of course, we know war war was raging. 
And if he didn't make this flight, he might never again spend a Christmas at home. Even the businessman looked up from his computations to show a guarded interest. The agent clearly was moved, even a bit embarrassed, but he could only offer sympathy and really not hope. The boy stood at the departure desk, casting anxious looks around the crowded room, as if hoping to find at least one friendly face. Finally, the agent announced that the flight was ready for boarding. The travelers, who had been waiting long hours, got themselves up, gathered their belongings, and shuffled down the small corridor to the waiting aircraft. Twenty, thirty, a hundred, until there were no more seats. The agent turned to the frantic young soldier and just shrugged. Inexplicably, the businessman had lingered behind. Now he stepped forward. I have a confirmed ticket, he quietly told the agent. I'd like to give my seat to this young man. The agent stared incredulously. Then he motioned to the soldier. Unable to speak, tears streaming down his face, the boy in olive drab shook hands with the man in the gray flannel suit, who simply murmured, Good luck. Have a fine Christmas. Good luck. As the plane door closed and the engines began their rising whine, the businessman turned away, clutching his briefcase, and trudged toward the all-night restaurant. No more than a few among the thousands stranded there at the Atlanta airport witnessed the drama at Gate 67. But for those who did, the sullenness, the frustration, the hostility, all dissolved into a glow. That act of love and kindness between strangers had brought the spirit of Christmas into their hearts. Well, the lights of the departing plane blinked star-like as the craft moved off into the darkness. The infant slept silently now in the lap of the young mother. Perhaps another flight would be leaving before many more hours. But those who witnessed the interchange were less impatient. The glow lingered gently and pervasively in that small glass and plastic stable at gate 67. Okay, folks, just one more story, and this is a personal story about my own family. So the year was about 1932. My dad and his three older brothers were living in Montana, up near Chinook, Harlem, Haver area. My dad was about five or six years old, and he had a little sister that was about four years old named Venice. Well, winters in Montana, my dad has told me stories, it is bitter cold. Well, little Venice, the little girl that was four, got sick. So my grandpa drove her to Chinook, Montana, where she passed away at the age of four and was buried December 21st. Well, Christmas Eve, my dad, again, who was about five and a half, had diphtheria. The other kids had pneumonia. My grandpa was sick. And the doctor came to the house to inoculate everybody. So it was, it was a sad situation at Christmas time. My grandpa was sick in bed, and the doctor quarantined the house. Well, the doctor asked my grandma if there was a tree. Grandma said, yeah, there's one out in the shed. Well, this good doctor helped grandma bring in the tree and then helped decorate it. So just a short story, but, you know, folks, I am forever grateful for a good man who gave of his time on Christmas Eve in 1932. Folks, I hope you have a good Christmas season and look forward to a a new year with more excitement, more things to do, and hope all is well with all of you folks. So... That's all for now. Thanks. 
say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. 